Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught David Moore. A creative director and copywriter living in the land of beef and corn, David has served in Adland for over 30 years. In that time, he's written ads for dog wormers, mainframe computer channel extenders, and $1,000 stakes. He even named the tallest, fastest roller coaster in the world. Lauded on LinkedIn for sharing ads for ad agencies, David is dead set on reminding us all that we have an obligation to advertise ourselves, yet remarkably few do. On being a creative director, David says... The hardest part is learning that just because it's not the way you'd do it doesn't make it wrong. I've never felt so seen. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Great to be here. Right. Seven quick fires, David. Cats or dogs? Oh, cats. Easy. Beef or corn? Oh, beef. I was warned not to, but steel or titanium? Ooh, titanium. (laughs) Jackson Brown... Or the Cleveland Browns? Tough one. I think I'm going to have to go with the Cleveland Browns. Nice. Right. Creative briefs. Fill out or write? Oh, write them. Absolutely. It's the biggest problem is people fill them out when they need to be writing them. Nice. Well said. Uh, Okay. Best ad now. We've got Y&R's Backbone or Computers Can't Cry. Uh, I'm going to go with Computers Can't Cry because it seems so timely today. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then finally, there's always an unfair one. This is a call to action pod alumni question. Carolyn Barkley or Derek Walker? Ooh, I'm there. (laughs) Hands down, Carolyn Barkley. (laughs) Sorry, Derek. Derek. Derek, we just lost a listener. He'll be back. Amazing. David, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, it's wonderful to be here and love the opportunity to uh, learn from you and just talk about the things that matter. And even things that don't matter. Yes, yeah, especially where we are. We're good at that. We're good at that. Uh, so, uh, as you know, we like to celebrate the uh, wonderfully weird and weirdly wonderful ways that guests end up where they are now. So, if we rewind back to the start, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first job in Adland? My first ever job is I was a photographer for a national auto racing publication. When I was 14, I was having my pictures published on the front cover. Um, which is what made me think I was going to be a photographer. My first job in advertising was selling advertising space for a local newspaper. It was the worst job I've ever had in my life. I ground my teeth in my sleep. <laughs> right. Okay. I've got questions. Photographer at 14. How does that happen? Yeah. Uh, my father gave me a camera and well, had a camera and said, if you can learn to use this, you can have it. And we had a dark room at home and I took to it like a duck to water and absolutely loved it. Oh, wow. But then I I worked in a photo studio and a custom processing lab and quickly realized I don't have patience to sit (laughs) there and, you know, 
agonize over things. I would go somewhere, say, there's a photograph here, shoot off a bunch of film and go find it in the darkroom. It's probably not that different than uh, how we come up with ideas today. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because at that age, and perhaps not as young as 14, although I might be wrong, were you interested in, in creativity and in kind of image making or capturing creative moments or anything like that? Or was that literally just as, as random a chance as your, your father had a camera and instructed you to learn it? I think it's entire, entirely random. I had no idea about the creative process. I just know that I would, I loved going into the darkroom and finding the image that was there, not finding it in the scene, but going and finding it. Okay. And then, so what happened between that, uh, your age of 14 and then working at the local newspaper? Well, I went to university because my father had a PhD and had taught at the university and neither of my older two brothers went to school. So the expectation Uh, was, of course, you're going to school. And since I was going to be a photographer, I went into journalism because that's where photography was. And that's when I quickly learned that I didn't really want to do that, but I stumbled into introduction to advertising. And it had psychology, art, literature, history, pop culture, photography, writing, design, everything that seemed to excite me. And it's like, wow, I love this. And I had a a very influential advertising professor who really helped uh, point me in the right direction. Oh, brilliant. That's actually remarkably similar to a very recent episode with the brilliant Greg Hahn, who, who, who similarly took a journalist route in his education. Well, I think there's something to that is that we're looking for truth. And when you're making a great ad, you're not trying to make, you know, we're not writing fiction. We're, we're writing the truth. We're just trying to find a compelling way to say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bang on. So what, what what was it about journalism then that didn't tick some of these boxes that obviously needed to be ticked? Well, I, w- I never went into journalism because I thought I wanted to be a news writer. It's just where photography happened to sit. But yeah. uh, that's when I discovered discovered advertising. And I, when it came to photography, as I said, I uh, had no patience to sit around and figure out how to light something. And yeah. I also saw that in order to really get ahead, you needed to know people. And I didn't know anybody. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get your first advertising gig? My university professor, Albert C. Book, sent me on two interviews. Uh, one was with the newspaper, the Omaha World Herald, and the other was with a local TV station. Just sent me there cold. I happened to get the job with the newspaper. And then after seven months of selling ad space to adult movie theaters and bookstores and all that, uh, the TV station called me and Gave me a job uh, writing TV commercials with no experience. Oh wow! So how? So, <laughs> so that must have been quite <laughs> tricky to start with. Was there a team there you could learn from at least, or did you just learn by doing? Yeah, I just learned by doing. I just got in there. You know, it was it was all low budget work. You just got handed a client, and you'd go and you'd write a commercial and go shoot it. I think fig- I figured it out that in three years I made five hundred TV commercials. Five hundred. It was really great proving ground because you don't have time to uh, agonize over everything. You just have to get in, find it, make it, move on to the next one. Oh, wow. And were there any particular, um, I'm, just, I'm just fascinated by how the problem or how the brief or how the opportunity would have presented itself to you, especially at that type of speed. So 500 TV commercials in three years, presumably there wasn't even much chance to read a brief. Oh, there there. There were no briefs. Right. You got introduced to the client and you met them, found out what they were trying to sell, and you went and you wrote a commercial. One time we 
I went with the account person to some small town where they were going to do a, they call a road show. They were going to do a half hour TV show on this town, which is really an excuse to sell ads. And I mm. went door to door with the sales guy and he would try to do a sales pitch. If he found somebody who wanted to buy an ad, I had to sit down right there and write it and using a, <laughs> fil- a 35 millimeter camera, shoot slides, take the pictures, then move on to the next, next door. It was a trial by fire. Wow, fast briefs. That's amazing. Does anything stick out from your memory of those times? Were there any particular ads that you can look back on and think that was a good ad? Or was it, was it so rushed you would just write, you know, you, you were kind of drowning in features and not really having the time to explore the benefits, etc.? cetera? Uh, there was no time to do anything very well. But that was the takeaway from that was understanding if if I had time or if I had uh, clients who understood what they actually had here, then we could do something great. Yeah. But no, there was never time. Wow. It's fascinating to me that that was even ever the case. But then I suppose because media is so fragmented nowadays, there is just such a kind of plethora of opportunity to advertise on so many different channels. Whereas I suppose it, it kind of makes sense retrospectively that it would be more of a conveyor belt of TV commercials. It, it was. So the, they, the TV station would, in essence, give away the production if you bought a package of, of airtime. So I was an add-on. How did that role develop then? How did you become more of the accomplished writer we know today? How, how, does it, how did you go from that to then where you are now? I got incredibly lucky. I got incredibly lucky to get both of those first two jobs. And then I got incredibly lucky that I had met these principals at this agency back when I was in university. And I got frustrated with my job. I had a new boss who I did not see eye to eye with. And I got mad and I called up this, uh, the general manager of the agency and I asked to buy him lunch. And he didn't remember who I was. But went to lunch with me, told him what I was doing and what I was looking for. If he had any advice, and he said to me, "Well, we just had a copywriter resign yesterday. Why don't you know? Well, why don't you call so and so? In fact, I'll have him call you." And they called me, and I did some spec work, and they hired me. And then I learned from some very smart people. A lot of it, though, was learning by doing and a lot of reading. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all and then if we if we i mean there's there's a few other media um topics that we want to dig into in in a bit more detail so if we accelerate that part of your career over the years your job titles have included copywriter producer creative director president managing partner and account planner and probably a few more that that i you know not privy to <laughs> firstly it sounds significant it also sounds a lot more varied than many will I suppose, ever get to enjoy. What have you learned wearing all of those agency hats? Oh, great question. Um, I think what I learned was uh, to just keep striving. I never had a vision that I wanted to be a creative director or I wanted to be agency president or any of those things. I wanted to do great work. And yeah. As a copywriter, I realized that there was somebody over me standing in the way of the work being as good as it could be. So, all right, I need to have that job. <laughs> then as creative director, you realize that while the account people aren't selling the work right or don't know how it is or the clients don't have the relationship, then I need to be in a role where I have that. I just kept stepping up, not because I wanted that. I just wanted to do great work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you had to step over that next part where there might have been some, I don't know, some friction or something 
to enable that great work. And then can I ask if, if were you ever, when you stepped into and started those roles, were you ever in a position where you felt like you knew how to do that role? Or did you did you step into the creative director role initially and then the president role and the managing partner role thinking, I need to learn how to do this by doing it? Um, I think I felt like I knew how to be the creative director. That came, yeah. that seemed to come pretty naturally. Being agency president uh, meant that I had to play a slightly different role that I was, than I was used to. And I yeah. never would crack, it sort of cracked me up. I'd come into a, a meeting and people would be all, Ooh, you're meeting with the president. And I'd laugh like, do you know who I really am? <laughs> you know, you, know, yeah. you have to, uh, but, but, but you have to act that role. And it's amazing what doors that will open if you just have the confidence. Yes, of course. Um, my question also, just to clarify, wasn't to suggest that you didn't know how to do the roles when you were stepping into them. Oh, no. More, more that I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated that people often talk about their roles as being something entirely new that needs to be explored and learnt on the job to a point, because, of course, you can't you know, fully understand or experience all the context of a role until you're, you're, you're kind of in it. But I also just like your refreshing take on that progress through those job titles that you were learning by doing and seeing there was someone above you and moving up. Absolutely. I think one of the things that keeps me moving in life is learning something new. I always want to learn something new and every role brings that opportunity to me. Even what I'm doing now, it keeps, you know, I continue to learn something every single day and I love it. I would, which is what I've always loved about advertising is that I can go through a day and work on multiple different types of clients in multiple industries doing a variety of different things. So I don't get bored. I absolutely love what I do. Yeah, that's really good. And I mean, to be honest, that's one of the few things I was confident I knew about you. And I've seen you talk on the brief bros, in fact, about that and made that exact point that you love this industry. And then I suppose it's probably both a celebration, but also a comment on the industry and some flaws in the industry. I assume that led you to setting up your wonderful ad agencies advertising themselves focus is that right is it more is it more of a celebration of ad agencies advertising themselves or is it in part a criticism that ad agencies don't typically do that anymore i think it's both i think when you look back and you realize and you see all the great work that was regularly done for agencies that believed in themselves enough to put their own name out there on the line and now it does frustrate me. It's like, why aren't we doing this? I wouldn't go to a doctor who doesn't take care of his own health. I wouldn't eat in a restaurant where the chef wouldn't dare dine. Why yeah. should I give you potentially millions of dollars for advertising when you don't believe in it yourself? Yeah, I meant to clarify, actually, before we before we dug into anything. And so that's an error on my part that we have had a significant <laughs> amount of listener questions to squeeze in. So I'm going to stick to uh, when we get to that stage, I'm going to stick to I think I'm going to try and stick to just two as we normally would. And I'm going to try and subtly crowbar all of the, all of the others in prior to doing that. But um, our, our good friend Derek Walker, actually, one of the questions he submitted feels uh, appropriate to bring up now, which is why are agencies so hesitant to advertise themselves and i must say we we did receive that question in in a couple of different shapes and sizes from others too well it's it's purely an opinion it's not done with any in-depth research although i maybe i should do that but i call it the four horsemen of the adpocalypse okay there's four (laughs) reasons that that we don't it's uh fear because we're afraid of what will our peers think and say if we're not doing just an amazing job Uh, margins 
agencies really do run on thin margins these days, so there's just not the budget and time they feel to do it. There's arrogance, like, oh, we don't need to. It's kind of beneath us. We're a professional services firm. Or ignorance. A lot of times what I do here is like, well, there's really nowhere to run it. I don't know how we would ever reach our audiences. <laughs> That's worrying. But I think the... I think the real reason, though, is they're just lost. They absolutely don't know what to say. Yeah. They want to be all things to all people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is, um, that is quite alarming. You actually, um, on, on, I've mentioned them already, but on the Brief Bros uh, interview you gave, which was coming up to maybe 18 months, almost two years ago, you talked about Y&R and, and how consistently and routinely they would advertise. Are they kind of the shining light that you look back on as the, the standard? Well, they're the ones that opened my eyes to it because I came across a, a, a stash of Fortune magazines from about 19, late 50s to uh, the, the 70s. And I started going through them, and I noticed that every single issue was a full-page ad for Y&R. And once I did the research, they ran a full-page advertisement for themselves in every issue of Fortune from about 1930 until about 1970. Some were amazing, some were so-so, but you realize that they showed up every single month. Mm. To do that over and over and over and over is, is amazing. And once you get into it, you start to discover there are some real gems, not just from Y&R, but from other agencies that were doing it. And now it's so rare when you do find an agency who promotes themselves, like Gasp. Uh, it, it's a it's a breath of fresh air. It's like wow, somebody actually gives a damn about it and is willing to go out there and say this is what we believe in. I love that. Just to completely show my hand here, I was actually I mean I'm, I'm over it now a few minutes later, but I was quite upset you didn't choose Backbone in the quick fires because that's that's always been my favourite ad of theirs. Um, the one on Backbone. It's 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 an amazing ad. It, it's 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 a close choice between those two, and I think the computers just feels particularly relevant. And when there's this mad rush to, uh, oh, we can just uh, use AI to write our copy. It's like, mm, yeah, no, not so much. Yeah. I'm going to dig into the uh, your, your four horsemen of the ad apocalypse slightly, if I, if I may quickly, because funnily enough, Derek actually also asked, what has fear done to the advertising industry? The first of your four points was fear. Um, and obviously, that's that was only in response to me asking about why ad agencies don't advertise themselves. But is that a, is there a bigger problem at play here that's affecting ad agencies? Because actually, and I'm only realising this while 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 I ask this, is that ignorance obviously is part of that mix too. If uh, if an agency isn't sure how to reach the people they need to reach, then actually that's quite alarming and should shock a few of their potential clients. It it is, and they, they are afraid because because they approach it generally as they're going to run an ad and if that ad isn't perfect then they're going to take heat from all their competitors from all their peers but that also brings to i think one of the biggest problems is the agencies approach it as an ad they say well we ran an ad once and we didn't get any response from it if a client told you that Mm. what would you tell them it needs to be a campaign where you set out and say this is what we believe in Oh, we're going to craft an ongoing campaign that says that, but they don't know what they believe in. They believe in whatever's going to get a buck in the door. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be turning the whole industry with that brush. No, no, no. no. 
I'm all too ready to do that at any given time. So actually, yeah, no, that needs to be needs to be said and needs to be clarified. And actually, I'm sure both of us could talk at length about all of the you know the rights of the industry. It just so happens I've <laughs> I've set you up to uh, to do quite the opposite on that. It's funny, isn't it? Also, you said about the response that ad agencies might fear that they get from their peers, but again, to me, that suggests a wider issue that. The ads really aren't meant to be for their peers anyhow. They're meant to be advertising for potential clients. So maybe there's a disconnect there too. Absolutely. And I had a discussion with an agency principal that I worked with and was trying to get them to find a position and what they stood for. And they wanted to, they were steadfast. They wanted to be full service, offer every conceivable service. They wanted to do it in every media for every client. And I said to them, I said, what would you say if you, if you asked a client who your audience was and they said everybody? And mm. they looked at me and they're like, wow, you're right. And then said, but I don't want to give anything up. Like, well, yeah. okay, there's the problem. Yeah. Again, fear, <laughs> fear and margins. And what do you mean then by arrogance as, as one of the other of the, of the four? Do you, do you mean that the arrogance is, is perhaps the position that they shouldn't need to or maybe even don't need to advertise to win new business? Absolutely. We, we don't need to advertise. We build our, it's a relationship business. Yeah. You know, people know us. That's how it comes about. Uh, you know, and I call, I call bull on that. And, and, and I've been in that place. Yeah, 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 sure. And, and especially the week we record this, you can't move on social media from ad folk rejoicing in the fact that Elon Musk has finally realized that even Tesla needs to advertise. Now, we could easily, yes. we could argue both ways, whether they've believed in advertising or not historically. And yes, Elon Musk is a significant PR, you know, machine of many ways. So yes, they already have. But it's, but it's funny that in one hand, I'm, I'm sure that you're right, that lots of agencies have an arrogance, however we want to articulate it, that they don't need to. But then equally, why should we then rejoice that when other companies realize they do need to, it's bizarre, real, right. real hypocrisy. It, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're full of that in this business. <laughs> um, another, I, I'm not going to just do these one by one because your point on margins, I think, uh, is, is certainly valid. But you, you kind of summarized it that the agencies are lost. Instead of maybe detailing why we're lost, how can agencies kind of rediscover whatever has been lost like what's your what's your advice because you've you've held so many different roles you have significant experience not solely from your own career of course it's supplemented by this kind of peerless research you've done into past ads of ad agencies promoting themselves so what's your advice to agencies who do feel like they've lost something and need to rediscover it well, they need to have a, a good, hard look at themselves. And while it, I've heard many times say, we need to treat ourselves like a client. Yes, you do. But sometimes you're too close to it. But you just need to figure out what it is that you stand for. you know. And don't be afraid to run an ad, even if it's an ad campaign about advertising. Because if you can start to own a category, if you're the only one out there talking about it, about the value of advertising, you're going to get credit for that. If you've got good people, you know what? Showcase your people. If you've done great work, showcase your work. Hmm. You know, and or even just take a stand and say what you believe in. And how much of that comes from there's a lovely turn of phrase here, which I've stolen from you, so I'm not trying to claim it. How do you do that from quote inside the pickle jar? How can you see that label? Or do you need to hire an ad agency? to do your own ads if you're an agency? 
I think there's a great value to hiring an agency to uh, do your your own agency advertising because you are so close to it. You really don't get an objective point of view because that's one of the things that we sell to clients all the time is we're going to give you that outsider perspective. We're going to see things that you can't see, but why yeah. do we not allow that to happen to ourselves? Yeah, yeah, bang on. And so how would you approach that? Because that's something that you do currently do in uh, uh, where you are now, Kingswood and, and Palmerston. That's right. That's uh, well, how would I approach it? And I, here's the irony is that we do our own promotion for ourselves, but I do <laughs> talk to other people. I know, yeah. I know, there's a little hypocrisy there. No, no, I'm not going but, there. I'm not uh, going there. <laughs> <laughs> but you no, know, it's it, you find somebody that you trust and believe in and bring them in as a consultant. You don't have to actually turn over the keys to somebody, but go ahead and bring them in and say, hey, Find another agency. They don't have to be in your market. You find a PR firm. Find one of the many uh, freelance creative directors who are out there in the world. Hire them to just give you ideas. It's like, what could we do? Play that game. Play the what if, what could we do? Spend time consulting with them about what is that you believe in. And I think as I'm going off on my rant now, Several years ago, I had a, a, a boss who made us do a five-year vision for our department, and I was so unhappy about that. It's like, this is just busy work, what a waste of time, and I ended up having to do it, so I had to write down all these goals. I put it away in a drawer, and several years later, I found it, and I realized I'd hit almost every single one of those goals. Wow. Not because they were softball goals, but the very act of having to sit down, talk about it, write it down set that unconscious goal in my mind and started making decisions based on that. So if you can bring in somebody as a consultant, bring them in to talk with you, it can help clarify your vision and get you out of the immediate day-to-day, -day, oh my gosh, I've got to make rent this month, I've got to make payroll. You know, Start figuring out where it is you want to go and then you can start to forge a path to get there. Yeah, well said. I mean, I don't mind plugging a consultant we use called Jess Gregson, and she's helped us do just that. And in fact, I I probably went through exactly the same mindset or kind of mental process that you did in response to thinking about, and actually, we were aiming further ahead. We were thinking, right, 25 years, then working back to five years. Well, then if that needs to happen in five years, what needs to happen in one year in order to set up year two, three, four? And then kind of you just... You then kind of either zoom in more and more or you, or you slice it up, which, you know, however you can best, I suppose, picture it. And actually, without doing that and without having someone external to talk to you about that process, speaking on my behalf anyway, it's not something you naturally do because, as you say, you've got rent to pay that month. You've got other overheads. You've got client issues. You've got, you know, whatever. And uh, it's, it's tricky. No, absolutely. One of the things that uh, really changed my view of the agency business is several years ago, we hired a consultant who at the time was not as well known. Now it's a big name, a guy named Tim Williams. Oh, Ignition Consulting. Exactly. We hired Ignition yeah. Yeah. quite a while ago and he really opened my eyes and did great things for our agency and I consider him incredibly valuable. Um, and I've since introduced I've introduced uh, this agency I work with now to Blair Ends and their whole business, and that's transforming that business. So bringing somebody in from the outside is really, really valuable. Yeah. Well, I mean, to repeat both names, when I when I spoke to Blair Ends recently on the Call to Action podcast, I, I deliberately spoke about Tim Williams because Tim um, Tim's was one of the first ever pricing courses I did, uh, kind of shaped in, in a kind of online diploma type 
sessions that he was running when I think it must have been early-ish days for Ignition Consulting, or at least uh, something he was do- he was doing then. And it really opened my eyes to the pricing models that I have, you know, since then been trying to uh, firstly understand, but secondly implement in, in our own business, which led me to Blair as well. So yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I think that's one of the I think it's one of the greatest things that we uh, damage ourselves is we don't actually value what it is we do, and we're so eager to win the business that we you know, sell ourselves short. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to share a story on that just briefly because I hope it will benefit the agency folk who are listening. But I actually heard from three different people who, who you know, are unknown to each other, all client-side marketers in the last probably 12-ish months. And they've all said the same thing. And the first time I heard it, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's clever, but, but I don't believe that's, that practice is commonplace. But they've all said it. And, and, what they, and it, was, it was during a discussion about pricing and how we value creativity and how we communicate and talk about uh, pricing and our fee structure here, specifically about RFPs and pitch process where, where, where you are often expected to pitch for, for free. And they each said something along the lines of clients will ask that or in a brief that they submit they might intentionally have a low a lower than realistic budget because (laughs) it will help them qualify the agencies that are prepared to basically bend over and take it versus the agencies who actually understand the true business value they represent and the ones who (laughs) challenge them and say look this is just not doable or realistic they then use that to qualify, yep, they're the guys we want to work with because they get it. Whereas the agencies who just say yes before they've even checked the budget are actually the ones that they routinely will dismiss. Now, I, I'm not saying that's true across the board, and I'm sure that, and, I, and I'm always clean, keen to clarify that if I'm ever caught criticizing agency folk, which I often am, I'm also, that applies to client side too. There's flaws on both sides and, you know, stupidity gets everywhere. But um, I thought it was a remarkable, remarkable thing. And if it is true, I kind of take my hat off to those clients because it's, it's a smart move. I think it's absolutely true. I once pitched a piece of business and um, once we won it, we were told that one of the other, other agencies had come in with a number that was less than half of what we were at. And the client told us, says, that told us that they really didn't understand the assignment. Yeah, yeah, yeah there we go. There we go. Brilliant. Is, is there any other good advice that you've received in, in, you know, in, your, in your time to date, David, that you can share with, with our listeners? <laughs> the, the best advice I've ever received in my life is uh, don't believe your own bullshit. Yes. <laughs> in line with that was uh, how much bile do you want to swallow? That's when you decide <laughs> if you're going to pick up and go. Um, <laughs> And I do have one third piece of advice that I learned from my mentor, a guy named Jay Schulberg, who was a grand title of global creative director or whatever. And he said it in a very fatherly way. He said, David, sometimes you have to be the creative director. Wonderful. Which meant don't worry about being liked. you got to do the job. The reason I chose that creative director quote in your intro, and I actually changed it last minute because it really sings to me, is just because, I, I, and I, I say this, I remember someone saying to me years and years ago when I first started, uh, in fact, it was my first agency role, and they described the role of a creative director versus that of a copywriter or art director as being like the difference between playing golf, where you can line up your shot, choose your club and take your time and practice a swing, to playing baseball where people are just hurling balls at you and you just have to bat them as, as, as best you can. And I think there's probably some sense in that, but I just loved your point about 
the fact that just because it's not the way you would do something, it doesn't make it wrong. Is that something that you had to learn the hard way? Because for me, it, it, it has been hard to learn that. Or, or do you just trump me massively on empathy and you knew that from the off? Ah, no, no, no. I learned that from watching people above me do it wrong. I worked for my, my first creative director was a very talented art director, very talented guy, but he was terrible as a leader. As he mm. would do, he would give the teams an assignment and we'd all come in and present our work to him and he'd go, that's good, that's good. And then he'd turn around and pull something out and go, well, here's what I came up with. Right. After you've done that two or three times, the teams quit trying. Mm. Um, and then the other piece is when you find somebody, a young person who is an enormously talented, and they bring you work that you just say, wow, I never would have come up with that. That's brilliant. That's when you learn to take a step back and go, I need to give this uh, horse some rope, Let's you know, some rain. Let's see where it goes. So you have to, you have to put your own ego aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great advice. And is that is that is that true of um, of many roles within a business? Do you think, or is that mostly a kind of creative director type role? I'm going to say it's probably more true in the creative director role because a lot of the other jobs are or the roles in an agency are more clearly defined uh, with a clear right and wrong. A creative director is completely opinion. So what you have to do is if you're and the talent that's working for you, it's their opinion. So that's why you've hired them. I, I don't hire an assembly line to produce my stuff. You know, this is a trite saying, but as a creative director, your role should be to find great people, give them the tools that they need to succeed and get out of their way. Fight their battles so that they can focus on doing the work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Whilst we whilst we're kind of digging into and picking your on your on your experience, another one of the listener questions that we had was, "What's the weirdest thing you ever saw in an ad agency?" <laughs> oh, I have no idea how to categorize what's the weirdest thing. Um, <laughs> I had the one where we were doing a new business pitch, and the president of the company came into the meeting and said, "Gee, he had something else up coming up, and he wouldn't be able to make it, but his wife would sit in for him." Um, she looked like she smelled something bad the whole time. We didn't win that pitch. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I've, I've, I've seen some strange things and none of them come are, are coming too much to mind at the moment. If any pop up, just shout out. Um, there's a, there's a quick, <laughs> before, before I do try and tackle and I, and I lied earlier, I'm going to have to get more than two into our listener questions. But before we dig into that, there's a, there's a wild card uh, topic of sorts, but I'm entirely clueless as to why we're bringing this up. But I understand you have a love of cover songs and, and, and a connection between cover songs and advertising. So what the hell is that all about? Oh, yes, I love this. So I, I, I do love cover songs. Um, okay. You know, where, where, where there's a song that's well known and yeah. then you hear somebody else do a completely different take on it and it's like it opens up your eyes to something completely new. And that's what we do in advertising. We don't we don't really create something completely new because if we do, it's an idea that people can't get their heads around and they don't get it. What we do is we find something that is that they know, find a truth, something they're familiar with, and then we put a different twist on it to use it for our selling message. So if you take a truth and then twist it, now you're, you're, you're doing what we do with a cover song. You take a song that we know, like one of my absolute favorites, the song, A Top of the World, a Carpenter song, 
covered by this Japanese power pop trio called Shonen Knife, all girl power pop trio. You cannot <laughs> listen to that song without being happy. It is just <laughs> absolute, a- absolute stunner. Um, but yeah, and you can just go on and on when you start going down it, but it's because he takes something familiar and you build on it and you twist it. Uh, now I get it. I um I have a an unhealthy obsession with a, a guy called Richard Cheese, who is Oh a, yes, yes, yeah, lounge yeah, singer. For, yeah, for that exact reason. For that exact reason. In fact, uh, my uh, my two young daughters love his um cover of Gangnam style. <laughs> and, well if you uh, if you also want to blow people's minds, uh Ring of Fire, the Johnny Cash song. Yes. It's covered by Billy Bob Thornton and Earl Scruggs. With really? Sort of hip hop hip hop beat and a heavy <laughs> uh, banjo. It is the most wow. bizarre mashup, but it's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, or, uh, or, the, or the Beatles girl covered by Tiny Tim and Brave New Combo. <laughs> one time I had I had an agency and we had on hold music and I programmed the music and it included most of these very strange cover songs. And I would get, uh, my account people would say, I just got off the phone with a client and they said, what on earth is that music that's playing? And I said, good. Now you had a discussion with them rather than boring them. You've given something yeah. to talk about. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, and I wonder also whether this falls under cover songs because it's kind of re, uh, representing some, something familiar in a more interesting way. But that lovely line, finally, Walmart has Gleason. <laughs> See, yes. we have done our research. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you have. No, that that was, and I have to give I have to give credit to my uh, uh, my planner who came up with that one. But I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah, as soon as you said it, I just thought, wow, it's just it's beautiful. And it, and and in fact, you know, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but certainly for why I love this industry, it's for it's for simple yet beautiful moments like that where you just uh, a reordering of words can just make your make my soul smile, assuming I have a soul. As well, you know, hopefully somewhere underneath that <laughs> advertising hasn't uh, hasn't totally destroyed it. <laughs> we interrupt this podcast as we thought your ears had suffered enough of the monotone ramblings of the host. Now this is a voice. Most pods drop an ad into these interruptions, not gasp. We won't awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host at giles at gasp.agency to talk client retention and brand positioning, like other companies did just the other day. Let's get you back to the show. The story starts, she said with glee, with a wizard chimpanzee. Oh, the beautifully voiced gem reading Gasp book. Adele writes an ad there, but not what we're after. Hang on. Right. There we go. I'm going to go to listener questions, David, and I'm just going to hurl loads at you. All right. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Let's start. Well, let's just have a have a moment here to enjoy one of Derek Walker's. What is it like to work with the brilliant and handsome Derek Walker? I don't know. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Derek Walker. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you when I meet that one. Oh, <laughs> Derek is a good guy. Derek's a good guy. Cynical as heck, and he has reason to be, but he's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Right, so we have a question here from... He goes on Twitter. It's, it's at GQ Bound, a.k.a. the writer Brian J. Wilder, 
And Brian says, what's a trait or skill set that you feel is missing in creatives today, specifically copywriters? Uh, Curiosity. Uh, And I think a lack of willingness to look back and see what has come before us. In almost every other field, we build on precedent, whether it's legal work, whether it's filmmaking, whether it's art. But advertising, in particular for copywriters, we seem to think that, oh, no, we're the only ones who are inventing this. There's nothing good that could have ever possibly come before us. Yeah. Oh, that's really well said, actually. We build on precedent in other, in other industries. I've never heard it put that way, but, yeah, absolutely right. I recorded a show, uh, our 100th show with, with Mr. Mark Ritson, and I made the same or similar point to him um, and questioned why in universities studying creativity and advertising and, and all of our dark arts, why it isn't a simple case of just showcasing the late, great Jeremy Bulmore's words. I think he kind of succinctly pointed out that many of the lecturers probably hadn't heard of him either. Um, but you're right, there, as an industry, we don't build on precedent. What a shame. Um, Carolyn Barkley asks, how do you attract, retain and inspire great creative talent when your clients aren't big, sexy brands? It's a good question. It is a great question. Um, it's not easy. One of the things that I did, and I did this at a couple of agencies, was created a program called After Hours, which where we encouraged the creative teams to seek their own clients, do their own work. We would at the t- you know, use, use the agency resources, meaning at the time, the, the computer technology, the printers or whatever, to create mm-hmm. your own work. So you're not having to deal with it through a, uh, a client or an account person because our, our clients were banks and insurance companies, very traditional conservative people who spent months or years developing a campaign. But you give a creative team free reign and say, you go go do it without anybody standing in the way. See what you can do. And at the end of the year, we would pay the entry fees or the award shows for that. But what it did is it allowed them the chance to see how far they could go. And yeah. that work didn't just give us recognition, but we ended up winning clients, paying clients because of it. And I remember having account people coming to us and say, coming to me and saying, how come we're not doing this kind of work for my clients? Like, well... Let's have a talk about that you know, yeah. because you're standing in the way. But giving creative people that ability to uh, to test themselves and push themselves without being told, oh, no, you can't do that or the client won't buy that, that, that I think really did a lot to retain them and, and also became a place where people wanted to go because they knew that they could do great work. That's a lovely idea. I re- I'm a big fan of that. In relation to our one of our first media topics about ad agencies advertising themselves, we actually had a question from, from a friend of the show, Jake Saunders. And I wonder if it's applicable for what you've just shared about after hours and perhaps why agencies might struggle to accommodate something like that these days. But Jake asked, is it a budgeting thing that prevents ad agencies from advertising and marketing themselves? And I wonder, I mean, I know you did say margins was, was a key, key factor, but I wonder if it's the very same reason why it might be prohibitive for agencies to offer something like after hours to their, to their teams. I, I, I think it entirely is because there's so much emphasis on the billable hour and, you know, you've got to produce, you've got to produce, you've got to produce, that there's no time for what is seen as, well, frivolous or, you know, non-billable work. 
And that gets back to one of the other t- topics that is really tough is compensation. Because if you're not being paid properly for the work, then you're not going to do the work. And I'm going off on another rant and tangent here, which is not really directed to Jake's question. But when I would be in a new business pitch and I would have, sit down and, have, and talk with the, uh, the prospect to say, why are you looking for a new agency? And inevitably, the most common answer was, well, my agency never brings me any new ideas. They only give me what I ask them for. Mm. And usually that's because, well, how are you paying them? If you're only paying them to deliver X, you know, it becomes a transactional piece of business and they're not going to go out of their way. If they try to, if the agency tries to budget enough in to their fee to compensate for the time that they spent chasing wild geese, you're going to beat them down on the price. Yeah. You know, so that's right. Go get away from the billable hour, which will then coming back to Jake's question. I think if you do that, then you can have the freedom to pursue different avenues and bigger ideas and allow your team to promote themselves. Yeah, well said. Yeah, again, I think you've um, I think you've articulated that really well. And, and all of those um, kind of pain points are, are, are linked, whether that was, you know, directly an answer to Jake's question or not. I'm, I'm going to I've got a couple here. I'm going to sandwich into one. So, again, Derek and Carolyn really went at it. So Derek has asked, what would you do differently? as far as your career and on a similar line carolyn asks no one learns much from the wins so what mistakes have you made in advertising that taught you the most and how can we avoid them what i would do different is i would take more risks and i would trust myself more trust my gut more uh there have been times in my career when i knew something wasn't right but i just didn't want to address it yeah i let things get out of control and it's, all, it's a heck of a lot more work to try to fix it after the fact than to prevent it. Yes. Uh, what it, mistakes that I've learned? Probably the same thing. Waiting too long to address something that I knew was a problem, whether it's a personnel issue or an agency issue or a client issue, you end up stepping back and trusting other people. And uh, yeah, there there were times when I trusted other people too much. Oh. And I did remember probably the strangest thing that I ever had seen in an agency. Oh, brilliant. It was just the most bizarre experience. We pitched, we were pitching a very major piece of business for our office. We were, I was part of an agency network and uh, we were pitching a self, a cellular phone business. And we spent two and a half months on the pitch. We traveled around, did side visits, put tons of work into it. We were pitching against two very, very, very good agencies, Butler Shine Stern and Vito Robertson. And somehow we won. We won the business. And nice. we were thrilled, just ecstatic. They, they awarded it to us on the spot, took us to lunch, awarded us the business. We called the office and talked to how wonderful it was. And then on the flight back that night, the account person got a phone call that we had to resign the business because... Our New York offices, uh, one of their largest clients, acquired a competitor of this business that we just won. We had that business less than 24 hours. Wow. 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 That was was bizarre to me to go through all of that, go that high, and then that that was the roller coaster. So quickly, too. Oh, my word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that hurt. Yeah, Yeah, I'd still be getting over that. Right, so the final part of the interview, then, David, is our four pertinent poses, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Younger self, uh, be brave. Be braver. 
And yeah, you can do it. Yeah. It's not come up, you know, necessarily a significant amount of times, but there, there is a kind of consistent theme of that. It's funny, isn't it? I wonder, you know, I've, I've often thought that you, you need experience and therefore age, I suppose, is, a, is kind of a byproduct, isn't it, of, of experience to, to kind of think about that and, and the, the kind of benefit that you get from, from age and experience just... I don't know how attainable that is at that age. I don't. I don't know. I certainly think, and this kind of relates back to, um, and, and is a nod to Carolyn's previous question about learning from mistakes. That we don't really encourage people to talk about failure in, in in a way that I think we should. That I think would be healthy for people to learn from. I, th- I think you're right. Wisdom comes from experience, and experience comes from mistakes. And- yes. Yeah. I, I like to say, how do you know where the line is until you cross it? Yeah, nice. Number two is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Uh, a pursuit of vanity metrics. I've worked with a lot of people who are, all the digital work is about, well, this is what gets the most views. This is what gets the most views. Well, I don't care if uh, cute kids dressed up as adults in your video <laughs> get a lot of views because moms want to share it it doesn't have anything to do with our message that we're trying to sell, but, but mm. it got views. Like, oh, and I, I do fight that battle a lot. Yeah. Where do you sit on awards as a vanity metric of sorts? There's a lot to unpack there. It's a bit unfair for me to sneak that in. That's all right. I, I am a believer in the value of awards. I've been a chair of um, our local award show. Um, I think it's valuable as a recruitment piece for the agency. I'm not certain that a lot of clients look at it and really care about it, Mm. but to keep your people motivated, to keep your people excited, yeah, you need to go ahead and, um, and, and, and reward them, you know, and that's a way to do it. I, at the agency network I worked for, we had, they put a moratorium on awards, because of the fees and I want to spend the money. Well, I went ahead and entered something that I'd done and paid for it myself and won at the local level and it went on. Suddenly they decided to step up and support that once it had, once they'd seen it was going to win and get attention for the agency. But I, <laughs> I think they're valuable. I think they have a place, but I do think they've gotten out of control. Like I have every copy of the one show awards annual. I'm, and I love yeah. to refer to them and see, not, not to go and copy, but to see how did somebody else solve this problem? Yeah. Because there, really no, there are really no new problems. Yes. Yeah, true. Um, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners, apart from the One Show Annuals? Well, the One Show Annuals is on my list. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I'd say uh, one of my absolute favorite books about the advertising is Where the Sucker's Moon by Randall <laughs> Rothenberg. Have you read that one? No, no, never. And it's never come oh. up before. Never come up before. I have, currently have three copies of it because I loan copies <laughs> and I never get them back. Yeah. It is subtitled The Life and Death of an Advertising Campaign. So Randall Rothenberg was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the people at Subaru Motors let him in behind the scenes as they went through the agency pitch. So right. he was in all the pitches and all the, the, the back negotiations. And then when Wyden and Kennedy won the business, they let him sit in and the first year of that campaign went horribly wrong for everybody and it's a wonderful uh tale about what can go wrong in this business i'm a big fan of uh, bill bryson's a short history of nearly everything 
because the lessons that you get from that are amazing and you can apply to about anything we do. And in advertising, the, a book that I refer to weekly is Dan Nelkin's Self-Help Guide for Copywriters. It is hands down the single most practical book that you can have in the business. Yeah, it's very popular, isn't it, Dan? It is. And and I put a plug in for myself. I host a quarterly virtual advertising book club. And we've had Dan has been on our club. Um, we've had Thomas Kemeny with Junior. We've had uh, Luke Sullivan with Hay Whipple. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of ad books. Yes. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, I mean, we'll link to your book club as well, actually, and encourage people to get involved in in that for sure. Great. Yeah, where the suckers moon. I feel, I feel like I feel slightly foolish for never even. It's one of those books I've never heard of. Genuinely, never heard of. But I'm going to check that out. It, it's truly wonderful. I, I, I love it. it. Makes you, makes you laugh and makes you realize how just ridiculous this business is. <laughs> good, good. One of the takeaways in that was in the, when one of the agency pitches, the agency principal pounds his fist on the table and says, "I won't rest until we have an automotive account at this agency." <laughs> and the people on the other side of the table are going, why do we care? What's about us? Yeah. <laughs> and then number four, David, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. Well, I would dedicate this episode to my partner, uh, uh, Carolyn Barclay, who really gave me a new passion and excitement and interest in the ad industry after I think I'd gotten into kind of a sad, dark place about it and had thought about giving up. And she came along with energy and enthusiasm and has really reinvigorated me. And I'm only just begun. I'm in chapter chapter two. Yes. It's really exciting. So thank you. That's awesome. That this is this is I'm so proud to be able to dedicate this episode to, to Carolyn. Um, what a lovely, what a lovely dedication! Fantastic. Well, I'm, and I'm pleased to hear that too. We all need a bit of energy and picking up from time to time. So, yeah, that's wonderful. As a final call to action, then the episode will list everything, including where the suckers moon. We'll have Bill <laughs> Bryson's "A Short History of Nearly Everything," uh, Dan's wonderful self-help guide for copywriters, and as I said, a link to David's advertising book club which runs quarterly how else can our listeners get more david Moore? well you, if anybody's still on twitter you can find me at twitter at elroy the cat which was the name of my cat when i opened up my twitter account <laughs> find me on linkedin and if you, anybody has any interest i do have a presentation on why advertising agencies should advertise themselves and how they need to go about it so reach out to me you can drop me an email at davidmoreecd at gmail.com Perfect. Or take a look at kingswinandpalmerston.com. Yes, there we go. Find us. Yes, we will, we will include a link to both your uh, email and, and KMP, uh, your agency. So wonderful. Listen, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure, a real pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be on that list when you include names like uh, Mark Ritson and all of the folks that I've listened to. It's like, <laughs> what, which one of these doesn't fit? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be tough. Which it's like an agency pitch I did once. We were doing a pitch and look, happened to look at the sign-in sheet for the other other agencies, and it was the Richards Group and Carmichael Lynch and us. And it's like, okay, one of these doesn't fit, and it's us. <laughs> <laughs>
Wonderful. Thank you finally to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or email calltoaction at gasp.agency. Try and I try.